Good morning. So we are continuing our... Ooh, somebody clapping right there? I haven't even said anything yet. I like that. That's just, I, don't, I don't even know what you're excited about, but um, this is already better than the last service, so keep it up. That was wonderful. Okay, so we are in our series, um, Way of Wisdom. We're preaching through the book of Proverbs. We, for a while there, were preaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Proverbs. Then when we got to chapter 10, we switched to talking more topic by topic rather than chapter by chapter because the first part of Proverbs is normal, but then once you get to chapter 10, you get to the part of Proverbs that Proverbs is famous for, which is the list of wise sentences that in many cases don't have anything to do with the sentence that comes right after it. So it's just these lists of wise sentences, and so we have been taking them topic by topic. We talked about... Uh, family relationships and pride and talking and listening and God's sovereignty. And uh, we did a couple of weeks on what Proverbs says about money. And so today's topic is anger, jealousy, and other parts of our inner lives. That's our topic. And before we get into Proverbs, I wanted to explain a few words to you. Um, Proverbs was written way, way before the term psychology was invented. Okay, did you know that? Psychology, as we know it, began maybe somewhere around the 1850s. So Proverbs was written about 2,800 years before that. So as you read through Proverbs, of course, you're not going to come across like the word psychology um, or that kind of thing. However, Proverbs uses words like heart and spirit to refer to the inner person, okay? like the you that's on the inside of you. And when I say Proverbs uses heart and spirit, I'm referring to an English translation of Proverbs. So there's a Hebrew word that is translated into the word heart and a Hebrew word that's translated into the word spirit. And they are used to refer to the inner person. Um, The word that is translated into the word heart in Hebrew that you'll see as I read Proverbs to you today is a word that seems to refer to the control center of a person's life, the decision-making part of you, your personality, you're like, this is the, you're the you that decides to do things, like your mind. In fact, the word that's translated heart in some places in the Old Testament is translated into the word mind. And I know that that's quite a bit different from like American English, where we think of our mind and our heart as two different things, right? My mind is the logical part of me and my heart is my emotions, but I don't think that they had that kind of distinction. Sometimes the word heart is just meaning the inside of you that, that makes decisions on the outside of you and, and it's your emotions and your thoughts and all that. And then there's this other word that's translated into the word spirit. And that's a completely different word. And the word that's translated into the word spirit isn't even always translated into the word spirit. There are many, many, many times that that Hebrew word in other places, it's translated into the word wind in the Old Testament. Okay? And the reason it's translated wind like a lot of the time is because that's what the word means. Like it's the Hebrew word for wind. So when it's talking about the breeze outside, this word is used and it's translated into English into the word wind. However, when it's talking about the wind that is inside a person, it's usually not translated wind into English. When it's talking about the wind that's inside of a person, sometimes it's translated breath. Sometimes it's referring to like a person's life, their life force, and it's a lot of times translated spirit. That it's this this wind that a person has on the inside that makes them different than a corpse, right? If you think about what's the difference between a person that's in a coffin and a person who's walking their dog at the park... And the answer is spirit, right? The difference between the two people isn't that one has a body and one doesn't. They both got a body. The corpse, like, right, the guy in the coffin has a body and the guy that's walking around has a body. The difference is spirit. One of them has an active, living, inner, you know, something's going on in the inside of them that causes them to be alive. That's different than just a body. So there are two different words, obviously. 
You have one of them is a word that could be translated mind, and then one of them could be translated wind. And yet, even though they're two different words, sometimes in the book of Proverbs, you'll see that they have parallel uses, that they're almost used like synonyms. Let me show this to you in Proverbs 17, verse 22. This will be an illustration. Proverbs 17, 22, it says this. It says, a joyful what? Heart, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken, what's the word? Spirit dries up the bones. So what is this saying? I think that it's saying that a joyful, a cheerful, a good you on the inside of you, like when things are healthy on the inside of you, a, a joyful inner person is good medicine. It's healing for the body. But a broken spirit, a, 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 when things are messed up on the inside of you, that is not good for your body. So I wanted to try to illustrate this as best as I know how. So I, I wrote this little poem that will, so you can kind of see how these words can mean different things, but they can mean the same thing. Um, and I, I say poem, that's being very generous to myself. Very short. It's almost a haiku. Um, four lines, and I wrote this poem not to be creative, just to illustrate this point. So here it is. Um, little four-line poem I wrote this week. I thought that man could not be trusted. I knew it in my gut. I knew I shouldn't believe that man. I felt it in my bones. Okay? Now, in that little poem, I'm using the word gut and bones as synonyms, right? When I say I knew it in my gut and when I say I felt it in my bones, that's two ways of saying the same thing, okay? In that case, I'm using gut and bones as synonyms, even though there are a lot of situations where you should not use those words interchangeably, right? Like an ER, that would be a terrible place. So, well, gut, bones, whatever, it's all the same. No, it's not. You're going to kill someone. Okay, so, so gut and bones are not the same thing. It's really important we realize they're not the same, except for the times when they are the same, and we need to realize that as well. So I say all that to make this point. My point is, is as we're going through Proverbs today, there are going to be times where Proverbs addresses the heart or the spirit, and it's referring to the inner you on the inside of you. And in many cases, I think it is addressing what we now would associate with the word psychology. Okay, so with all the, you following me so far? Okay, great. So this week, my outline falls under four headings, and each heading is a question. So we'll do these four questions, and the Proverbs will come underneath each of these questions. Our four questions for this morning are, number one, what does Proverbs say about the connections between our inner life and our outer life? Number two, what does Proverbs say about the connections between our inner lives and our relationships with other people? Number three, should we restrain our emotions? And number four, what does God have to do with this? So we'll take them one at a time, starting with, verse, starting with the first point. Number one, what does Proverbs say about the connections between our inner life and our outer life, or what's going on in the inside of us and what's going on in our body or the parts of us that people can see? Okay, what's the connection between our inner life and our outer life? So we'll start with Proverbs 14.10. Proverbs 14.10 says, The heart knows its own bitterness, and no outsider shares in its joy. It's an interesting proverb. What does it mean? What is this talking about? The heart knows its own bitterness, and no outsider shares in its joy. I think that this proverb means that you are the only one that can know what you're feeling, right? The heart, that is the inner... The, the, the you on the inside of you, the inner person, knows its own bitterness. Like the you on the inside of you knows the bitterness that's on the inside of you. And no outsider can share in its joy. So it's not just true of bitterness. Like your joy is something that you are aware of because it's inside of you, but someone who's outside of your body cannot feel your joy, right? They can feel their own joy, 
but yours is yours. And so I think you, only you can know what you're feeling. Or maybe another way to say this is your feelings are private to you, right? They're private to you because they happen on the inside of you. So that's the first point. You probably already believed that, but, but I'm just, we're starting simple, okay? So your feelings are things on the inside of you. You're the only one who knows how you're feeling. However, there is a big exception to that. And I think the exception is found in Proverbs 15, verse 11. Proverbs 15, 11 says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more human hearts? So Sheol and Abaddon are um, ancient words for the realm of the dead. Okay, Sheol, I think in particular, it's not quite like heaven and hell, but Sheol, I think, is more of a neutral word, but it's like afterlife or it's a, the grave or whatever, where people go when they die. So it's talking about the realm of the dead, and it's saying that the realm of the dead lies open before the Lord. He can see what's going on. After a person dies, God knows what's going on. Like, that's hidden from us. When grandma dies, where'd she go? What happened? Like, we, we don't know. Here on earth, we, it's hidden from us what happens after a person dies. It is not hidden from God. God knows exactly what's happened, like where people go when they die. He knows exactly what happens after this life. Okay? The realm of the dead is open before the Lord. He's aware of all of that. And there's another thing that's usually not open to people, but the Lord sees right into it, and it's what? The human heart. Just like God can know what happens after this life and after you die in a way that, you, you know, in a way that we can't see, he also is able to look into the human heart. So when you put these two Proverbs together, I think it's fair to say like, only you can know how you feel with the exception of God, God also knows how you feel. In fact, it's probably fair to say God knows how you feel better than you do, right? You know how you feel, nobody else does, except for God, who understands you better than you do. All right, Proverbs 14.30, still under this topic of the connections between our inner life and our outer life or our body. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy is rottenness to the bones. A tranquil heart, when you have like peace on the inside of you, it is life to your body. But jealousy, and this is a word that means, can mean like zeal or passion, but it's clearly a negative word, right? This jealousy is rottenness to the bones. And then a similar verse, 17.22 in Proverbs, a joyful heart is good medicine, I read this to you earlier, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Our emotional states are connected to our bodies. Our inner person affects our total health. All right, question two. What does Proverbs say about the connection between our inner lives and our relationships? Okay, other people's hearts and other people's bodies, right? What does Proverbs say about the connection between our inner lives and our relationships? So we'll start with Proverbs 10, verse 12 for this one. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. I think this is a very simple one. What, is this, what does this proverb mean? I think it means exactly what it looks like. Hatred in your heart negatively affects the relationships that are outside of your heart, right? Hatred in the heart hurts relationships that are outside of your heart. And love inside your heart helps relationships that are outside of your heart. heart love covers all offenses. I assume that that's a reference to forgiveness, that because I love you and you've wronged me, I will forgive you, and because I love you and I forgive you, our relationship is restored. The love that I have on the inside of me spills out onto the outside of me, making our relationship good. However, if it were hatred that were on the inside of me, that makes our relationship bad. So there is a connection between our inner lives and our relationships. Uh, Proverbs 12, verse 25 is another one. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, 
but a good word cheers it up. You've experienced this before, haven't you? I mean, you know this is true. I, if you can be here this morning, you're not even a Christian, but you know this, is, this, this part of the Bible is true, right? Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word cheers it up. Anxiety can sometimes be alleviated through positive relationships, that you've been in a situation where you're burdened down and then someone says a word of encouragement and, oh, and it makes it bearable. And that's what I assume that this is saying. I mean, it doesn't say relationship. It says good word. But I'm, I'm assuming primarily that's going to be a good word that comes from outside of you. It's not the person with anxiety that's, that's being weighed down and then they speak a good word to themselves, right, and cheer themselves up. But most of the time, I mean, I guess that could happen. But generally speaking, it's someone else encouraging you in the midst of your hard time and your anxiety. And it feels bearable. So that can be other people's lives affecting your inner life. Proverbs 15, verse 18. It says, A hot-tempered man stirs up conflict, but a man slow to anger calms strife. Again, we see hot-tempered, that's, the, that's on the inside of you, right? What does it do? It stirs up conflict on the outside of you. It, it hurts relationships. But a man who is slow to anger, that is emotional control, does what? It brings peace to people outside of that person. Proverbs 21, verse 19 says this, Better to live in a wilderness than with a nagging and hot-tempered wife. Now, it's funny. Whenever I teach on a proverb that's about like a woman or a wife, um, what happens is what just happened, okay? That whenever I read one of these, there are people who smile, there are people who giggle, there's maybe a few people that get sort of sensitive. Is that sexist? Why did it just say that? Okay? A nagging and hot-tempered wife. It could also be translated woman. A nagging and hot-tempered woman. Well, why is it, you know, was that sexist? And, and I, so let me just point out, first of all, just because I think this is funny, the verse that I read to you just before this one started with the words, a hot-tempered man stirs up conflict and nobody batted an eye. <laughs> and nobody laughed. Nobody was consensitive. Like everybody's like, yeah, hot-tempered man, that's a thing, right? Then you bring up nagging and hot-tempered wife and it's like, wait a minute, why are you bringing that up, right? <laughs> but I think, that the Bible recognizes you can have a hot-tempered man and a hot-tempered woman. Isn't that not true? Now, I understand why there are... Um, thank you. <laughs> I understand that there are reasons for the sensitivity because a lot of times in Scripture, when we come across a man, the word man or some masculine term, we understand it to be more general than that. But a lot of times when it says a man stirs up conflict, we, we read it and understand that's talking about a person who stirs up conflict. But when it specifies a feminine term, we go, well, that seems to be something specifically about women, not just people in general. And so I, I do get that. Um, but I, I, it, is, it is true, right? Like, are, I don't know who's saying, do, is, is, set, is, is there such thing as a nagging hot-tempered wife? Does that exist somewhere? Okay, thank you. All right. And so this proverb is talking about it. And, and I bring it up, not even to bring up anything particular about women or not even to bring anything particular about marriage, but just for you to see the principle of it, which is there can be something going on on the inside of a person, hot-tempered, that can then come onto the outside of that person, nagging, that then ruins the lives of the people around them so that they would rather live in a wilderness, right? That's a thing that can happen. I'm convinced that can happen with both men and women. All right, Proverbs 19, verse 19. A person with great anger bears the penalty. If you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. Notice that it says him. Nobody got offended. Anyway, 
<laughs> a person with, again, I understand, I understand, I understand. Okay, but anyway, so point is, a person with great anger bears the penalty. If you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. It's the, you'll have to do it again is the reason I picked this one, right? If you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. The reason I picked this proverb to be in this point is um, to point out that sometimes negative emotions, in this case, anger, can become habitual, right? What is the reason? It says, hey, person is angry and they get in trouble, and you can go rescue them from their trouble, but they're just going to be in trouble again next week. Well, why? Why are they going to be in trouble again next week? Because it's become a pattern. Negative emotions can become a pattern or a habitual thing that we need to watch out for. All right, question number three. Question number three. Should we restrain our feelings? Um, this is an interesting question because there are all sorts of people that have all sorts of feelings about this, okay? Should we restrain our feelings? And there are people that talk about expressing your feelings and I need to express myself and suppressing your feelings and you shouldn't suppress it. And so there's probably all sorts of opinions on should we restrain our feelings. But my, my answer to this question is going to be this from the Bible. I think the answer is yes and no. And I think I need to refer to some things that are outside of the book of Proverbs first, and then we'll go to what Proverbs says about this question. But I want to go outside of Proverbs first to give us some balance and perspective to this issue. So before we even see what Proverbs says, just when you look at the scripture as a whole, I want you to notice that God the Father in the Bible is described as someone who expresses emotions. So it can't be sinful to express emotions because the Bible characterizes God as someone who expresses emotions, right? God is holy. You need to know this. God is perfect in all of his ways. And the Bible also describes him as someone who rejoices and someone who gets angry and that God is even a jealous God. So it can't be, when you, have this, when you have God being described as someone who rejoices over this, or he's happy about this, or he's angry about this, or he's expressing his you know, negative emotion or anger about this, or it says that he's jealous, it can't be that those things are sinful. It can't be that jealousy is always sinful, or that anger is always sinful, because God does them, right? So, um, before I keep going, I want to do just a little tangent on the jealousy of God. Might as well, because we brought the topic up. By we, I mean me. Um, and because the topic got brought up, I think I might as well just address this real quickly, because um, I don't know when I'm going to be able to address it again. And someone just like, I don't know, four or five, six weeks ago, someone from this church asked me about this. They said, um, they said, the Bible describes God as a jealous God, and it seems like jealousy is a negative attribute. So why in the world does the Bible say something negative about God? And so let me just give you a brief answer to that. I said to the guy... I don't remember exactly what I said to him, but I think it was pretty close to this. I, I must have said something like, jealousy must be one of those things that is appropriate for some occasions and not appropriate for other occasions. It must be something that's both good and bad. It must be bad because the Bible warns us against jealousy. But it must be good because there are times where the Bible says that God does it, right? And so this was the illustration that I gave him. I said something like this. I said, imagine a husband... He's married his wife, and he is in a covenant relationship with her, right? They have made vows to one another. For their life long, they're going to be exclusive to one another. And that husband is with his wife, and one day the wife says to that husband, I want to cheat on you, or I am cheating on you, and I want to continue to do so, or something like that. And then imagine that the husband says back in response, whatever. Do what you got to do. Isn't there a problem with that guy? Right? Like if she says, I think I want to be unfaithful to you and I want to continue to do so. If he goes, yeah, that, whatever. 
do what you got to do, we would realize there's a problem with that relationship. We would wonder, does he even care about her anymore? Does he still value the exclusivity of their relationship? Does he have a love for her like that anymore? Like, it seems so obvious that in that situation, some form of jealousy would be appropriate for the moment. Does he even care about her? And so the same thing applies to God. If we are in a covenant relationship with God and we're his people, and, he, and, and we walk away from him, we stray, we cheat on him, and he says, that's bad, I don't like it, I want you back. Well, that's appropriate. That's exactly how he should feel, because God is love. All right, so that was the tangent. Tangent over, back to the sermon. God is holy, he's perfect in all his ways, but he's a jealous God. There are times he expresses his anger, there's times he expresses his delight. And then we see the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, same way. Not only is God the Father described that way, but Jesus, the perfect son of God, is described as someone who was a human being on this earth and had emotions that he expressed. There's a time in the book of Mark, I think it's recorded in some of the other Gospels as well, where the disciples, like there were these little children that were coming to meet Jesus, and the disciples rebuked the children and tried to keep them away from Jesus, and Jesus got mad at the disciples for doing that. And, the, and, and he must have done something on the outside that they could see. He was mad at them for doing that. And Jesus experienced deep distress in Gethsemane. And in John... In the book of John, it talks about Jesus wept when Lazarus died. So I am pretty convinced that God is not against the expressing of emotions or that he has some sort of expectation of, on his people that if you are holy, you will act like an android, right? I am holy. I have no feelings about that, right? Like that is not what we see. That's not what we see of God's expectations. That's not what we see of God or Jesus' personality. So... Having said all of that and making that perfectly clear, now let's go back to the book of Proverbs and I want to show you the other side of the issue because the book of Proverbs makes it very clear that emotional restraint is also important. That while the Bible as a whole, I would say, clearly is not against the expressing of emotions, Proverbs itself is very clear and repetitive on the importance of emotional restraint. It must be important to be able to control these emotions that we have because Proverbs talks about it so many times. Let me show you a few of them. Proverbs 17, verse 27. It says, The intelligent person restrains his words, and one who keeps a cool head is a man of understanding. Okay? So the intelligent person, that's who you want to be, by the way, in this proverb. Okay? The one you want to be is the intelligent person. The intelligent person does what? What's the word? He restrains. He restrains his word. The one who keeps a cool head is a man of understanding. That's what you want to be, whether you're a man or a woman. right? You want to be a person of understanding. You want to be an intelligent person. What does that mean? It means keeping a cool head and restraining his words. Now, here's my assumption. My assumption is there's something on the inside of this person. There's some words in there that want to come out. Have you ever felt that before? And this passage is saying that the intelligent person feels the words coming and holds them inside. There's wisdom to that. There are occasions where we need to restrain what we say. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, A man who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. Now, this is a, a graphic image, right? Like, you can picture it. The man who cannot control his temper, this guy who can't control his own emotions, he's like a city whose wall is broken down. 
You can picture how that would be a, a, there would be a people who would be unsafe, they would be vulnerable. Now, this might not have quite the punch that it would have in ancient times that it does for us, like because, or the other way around, like it, it does. Like th- they would relate to this because they lived in cities sometimes that had walls around them, right? Virtually none of us live in a city that has a wall around it. So it might be hard for us to relate to this. What does that mean? How can you picture a man who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down? And so let me just go ahead and update it and give you a somewhat more modern illustration, and hopefully this will help you. One time, my family and I went on a vacation. And we were, we were, it was a vacation where we were using an RV. A friend of ours that owns an RV loaned us his RV, so we were on vacation in an RV. It was wonderful, um, sort of. And as we were driving along, um, this one like this was early on. I think this was day one of the vacation, or maybe day two. Um, we're driving along, going about whatever, 55 miles an hour down the road, and the back window of the RV falls out and lands onto the street as we're driving, and just shatters into a zillion pieces. So now there's like a hole in the side of the RV, and. I mean, you could picture, like, just, you know, in a car, when you roll the window down, but it's kind of a bigger deal with an RV, because in the inside, there's like a house in there, right? So there's a bed, and sheets, and curtains, and blankets, and, and clothes that are all flying around like tornado town as you're driving down this road, because there's this hole in the vehicle. So what are we supposed to do? We needed to do something to plug up the hole. And how do you handle that? You can't just stop by a gas station and buy a, you know, RV window. Those are like specialized things. So we had to fill it up somehow, and so we got duct tape and cardboard. And we duct tape and cardboarded it shut. And for the rest of the vacation, that's what we had. For the rest of the vacation, while we were driving, the way we were able to drive okay or the way we were able to sleep at night was that we had cardboard and duct tape in the hole. And there were times in that vacation that I felt vulnerable. I felt unsafe. Like we're sitting there and it was in the, the, the bedroom that my wife and I are sleeping in. It's right above our head is this window that's just a little piece of cardboard and that's what's between me and the world. Like I'm sitting there in the campground imagining how many murderers might be out there <laughs> in that campground. And I'm realizing the thing that is between me and said murderers is a little piece of cardboard and some duct tape. That's it. Because there's a hole. It is <laughs> it's duct tape. So now, looking back on it now, I realize it's irrational. Um, first of all, the window was kind of high up, like murderer would have to come like with a ladder probably in order to get up to that part of the RV. And so it's probably silly that I was concerned about it. But the point is, there is a time where there's like a hole in a wall where there's supposed to be wall and you are, you are feeling unsafe, you're feeling vulnerable, you're feeling there's not much between me and the bad guys. And I think that's what's being said here. A man who cannot control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. That if the bad guys choose to come, they're going to come right in. It's not going to be good. The person who cannot control his temper, he's not safe. He's vulnerable. Something bad is going to happen to him eventually. Proverbs 16, verse 32. This is another proverb about the importance of emotional restraint. It says, Patience is better than power, and controlling one's temper than capturing a city. Better for you to control your own emotions than to control a whole city. Proverbs 12, 16. This is a good one, it's quite practical. It says, a fool's displeasure is known at once, but whoever ignores an insult is sensible. Isn't that true? There are times when, when someone's displeasure is just immediately known. In fact, you know some people that just anytime they're upset about something, it's just coming out everywhere and everybody knows all the time. The Bible says it's a fool. You're a fool. If, if every single time you got a negative something, it's coming out of you all the time. That's a fool. 
But whoever ignores an insult is sensible. That there are times when you go, you know what, I, don't, I didn't like that. I'm not doing anything about it. Tremper Longman is an uh, Old Testament scholar. And he says in his, his book that he wrote on the book of Proverbs, he says, prudence is the ability to regulate one's emotional display for one's own advantage. And I think that's true. Prudence, I assume he's using it as a synonym for wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to regulate one's emotional display for one's own advantage. Isn't that true? Wisdom is like that. In fact, when I thought about that, I even, it reminded me of car shopping. Ever seen that before? That like being able to regulate your emotional display. I don't know if you do this, but whenever I go shopping for a car and the salesman is there, like I don't let all of the emotions come out in front of him, right? I'm not, there's no way I'm going to do or say anything that's going to sound like, oh, I want this one so much, I will pay any price, right? No. When he goes, did you like it? I'm sitting there going, you have no clue how I feel about this, right? Why? Because sometimes it's wise to be able to control your emotions. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 19 through 20. It says, don't be agitated by evildoers. And don't envy the wicked, for the evil have no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. And this one's interesting because it seems to be talking about something related to the emotions, right? Don't be agitated by evildoers. That's an inner person sort of thing, right? And don't envy the wicked. That's something you do on the inside, right? That you have this jealousy. Why are they getting that and I'm not? And what does the verse say? <laughs> it says don't. Like, it's interesting because a lot of times we go, I can't help how I feel, but this, this is one of those verses that says... Don't feel that way, right? Don't envy. Don't be agitated. But it doesn't just say don't, right? There's more to it than that, right? It's don't envy the wicked for the evil have no future and the lamp of the wicked will be put out. So it's not just don't. He's countering this emotion over here with truth. So it's, it's almost like he's, he's saying don't envy, but it's almost like he's saying you don't have to envy. You don't need to envy the wicked. Like don't, you don't need to be jealous of them before you see how the story ends, So I thought about it this week, and I was thinking about how the Proverbs talks about emotional restraint, and I wondered if the only emotional expressions that need to be regulated are the negative ones. Because I was going through all these different verses, and I read so many verses on this, not even, you know, more than I'm even reading to you right now. And I, and I started to wonder, like, is the idea of regulating your emotions something that you're just supposed to do with negative ones like anger and jealousy? Because it seemed like most of the Proverbs that talk about emotional restraint are about things like anger and jealousy. And I thought, probably this doesn't even apply to things like joy. And then I remembered one. I remembered this one. I came across this one as I was studying. Proverbs 25, 20. It says, singing songs to a troubled heart is like taking off clothing on a cold day or like pouring vinegar on soda. I don't recall ever having read this verse before. I must have, but I don't recall ever having read this until this week. Very interesting proverb. It's obviously talking about something negative, right? Pouring vinegar on soda. If you've ever poured vinegar on baking soda, you know that it's like an explosion sort of thing, that, that volcano thing that it does. Um, and uh, it's, it's a negative thing here, and it's also compared with taking off clothing on a cold day, which is obviously a negative thing. Even those of you that have grown up in Florida like your whole life, you know that cold can be painful. Like there can come a point where, you know, you take your jacket off and it hurts. And then if someone were to come and take your shirt off after your jacket's already been taken off, like that, that hurts. And that's being compared to singing songs to a troubled heart. What does that mean? 
I think that this proverb is saying that there's a problem with trying to be cheerful in the midst of tragedy. I think that it's saying when, you, when someone is going through the midst of tragedy and you kind of show up and go, well, let's just sing some happy songs. That's making light of their intense suffering, their troubled heart. And it reminded me of Romans chapter 12, verse 15. It's kind of a famous passage in Romans chapter 12. Verse 15 of Romans chapter 12 says this. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, this is um, in a chapter where Paul is telling the Romans how Christians are to relate to one another in the church. How are we to relate to one another? We're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I think it's saying when something is good in someone's life, then you celebrate with them. You, you don't, don't be jealous of them. Don't be unhappy when something good happens to them. And vice versa, if something bad happens to them, don't be happy that something bad happened to someone. No, weep with them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So we have things like joy and sorrow and appropriate occasions for each one. So you don't, you, don't, you don't rejoice with the one who weeps and you don't weep with the one who rejoices. You don't rain on someone's graduation party, right? You show up and there they are celebrating and there you are. Right? That's not the time for that. And on the other hand, if someone's spouse just died... You don't try to cheer them up. You lament with them. So apparently, there is a time to express emotion and there is a time to control emotions appropriate for the situation. All right, number four, final question. What does God have to do with this? Now, some of the Proverbs mention God specifically, and we've already covered one of them, the one that says that the same God who can see into the realm of the dead can see into our hearts, and he knows us on the inside. But there are other Proverbs that also talk about God specifically. I'll read you some of them. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, Don't say I will avenge this evil. Wait on the... Now who? The Lord. Wait on the Lord, and he will rescue you. Don't say I will avenge this evil, but wait on the Lord, and he will rescue you. So here we have a Proverbs talking specifically about God, I mean, you could say maybe this is not a proverb about emotions, but it seems to be connected to it, right? <laughs> Don't say, I will avenge this evil. That, that, that I'm assuming there is this desire for revenge that comes from something on the inside of you, right? There's anger on the inside of you, and I want to take revenge on this person. And this passage seems to be saying, not only don't do it, but, that, but God is the reason not to do it. That God's rescue is the reason to not take revenge. Another one is Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. It says, if your, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, maybe referring to God's judgment one day, and the Lord will reward you. Now this is interesting because I knew this verse was in the Bible. I didn't know it was in Proverbs because this is quoted in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 12, this verse is quoted, and that's the place that I'm more familiar with it. And I didn't, I didn't realize that Paul was quoting from the book of Proverbs when he said this. But, but in, the, in, in the New Testament, when Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 12, the context there is specifically about um, trusting in God's judgment. Like, don't take revenge on someone. Trust in God's judgment. Two more verses I'll give you. Proverbs 24, 19 through 20. 
It says, don't be agitated by evildoers. I read this one earlier. And don't envy the wicked, for the evil have no future, and the lamp of the wicked will be put out. I think that's implied there, that God will be the one that does that. And then verse, chapter 23, verses 17 and 18. Don't let your heart envy sinners. There's the word heart again. Don't let your heart envy sinners. Instead, always fear the Lord. For then you will have a future and your hope will never fade. And so it says, don't let your heart envy sinners, but it specifically says, they have no future, their lamp will be put out, but you will have a future and your hope will never fade. The opposite of what will happen to the wicked. There's a judgment coming one day. You want to, be on, you, you want to fear the Lord instead of envying sinners, and I think it ought to be this way. Instead, you should worship the true God and you'll be fine long term. And hopefully that can calm you down now. I'm going to read you this quote I came across this week in a book. Uh, it's by a seminary professor at Yale Divinity School, and he has a hard-to-pronounce name, so I'm not even going to try. His last name's Volf, V-O-L-F. But I thought this was good, so I want to read the quote to you. He says, The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. You understand that? Now, if you're here and you're maybe a sixth grader or a seventh grader, I realize you might go, um, Pastor, I don't use words like renunciation and presupposition. So let me go ahead and just re-say that in my own words. I think that what he's saying is this. Because God is going to bring about a judgment day one day, because in the future there is coming a day when God is going to make everything right. He's going to forgive everything that should be forgiven. He's going to restore everything that should be restored. He's going to punish everything that should be punished. Because there is a judgment day coming where God sets everything right, because that day is in the future, you can right now on this day not be angry and have to take revenge on people to make things right now. And that doesn't mean there shouldn't be governments and crimes and court systems and all that. But I think that the point here is your personal revenge and your anger on the inside and coming out on people to make everything right and just in this life, especially when it comes to the point, well, I'm, I'm going to use violence to make things the way they ought to be. No, God is going to make things the way they ought to be. And knowing that's going to happen one day can change life right now. So let me proclaim the gospel for you. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth and he lived among us and he experienced emotions just like humans do, right? Because he was a human. He experienced the things that we do. He dealt with like distressing situations and strong feelings and hormones and all that stuff because he had a human body, right? He was a human being. And so we might think to ourselves, like, well, how can God understand what it's like to be me? Like, he came down here and he was one of us. He experienced dopamine and serotonin and whatever other chemicals we've got shooting around in our bodies. Like, he knows. He did all that too. He was a real human, yet God. He knows what we go through, and he lived a sinless life for us. And he died on the cross for every wrong thought, every wrong action and every wrong emotional expression in the lives of his people. So that those of us who trust in him would not be punished or would not have our lamp put out, to use Proverbs' words, that we would be instead rescued and have a future. And so I, I believe that 
the gospel can affect our thoughts and our feelings and our actions right now. The gospel is not merely a ticket to heaven or a get-out-of-hell-free card, although I do believe it is that, but I think it's more than that. It can change our world. It can change our world because it can change us. It can change our thoughts and our emotions and our living. The good news of Jesus Christ can change our hearts and our spirits now and for all of eternity. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this truth. I mean, we're in a, I'm in a room right now with a bunch of people who have all sorts of feelings. And I know some of us experience them more intensely than other people, or at least it appears. We don't know what other people think on the inside. I mean, our, our feelings are private to ourselves. And yet we can look at other people on the outside and go, wow, some people have more control than others. Some people have more of an intensity than others. Maybe some of us even have a little bit of shame going like, well, I, I have not always handled my emotions rightly. So we thank you, God. We thank you for the wisdom of Proverbs. That we can, we can see that there is stuff going on in our lives that really is not that much different from things that people were going through 3,000 years ago. The human condition is somewhat similar to the way it's been. And there are, there's wisdom and there are sages that you have put throughout history and there are words in the Bible so that we can know how to live on this earth. And so we thank you for that. And I pray you would help us to be a wise congregation in the way that we handle our inner lives. And so I thank you for your wisdom and I also thank you for your salvation. And I thank you for sending Jesus. I do not believe, I, I do believe that without Jesus, there'd be no way we'd be able to handle our emotions as we ought to in a way that pleases you. There's no way that we could just take wisdom all by itself and go, okay, well, I'll just be wise from now on. We needed you to die on the cross to make up for all of the times we have been wrong. And we need your spirit to help us live. And so we thank you for your wisdom and we thank you for the gospel and for your grace. And I just pray you'd make us into a wise and grace-filled congregation of people. And I pray for us as individuals, you would help us to be people who, who handle our spirits or our hearts well and that we do it because of what you've already done for us. And we just thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.